Dear Jesus, uh, thank you give, for giving us this opportunity to um, just speak through Tom and let us uh, hear what he has to say and um, just just let what he has what he has to tell us today just rock us and just show us how good you are and um, yeah, God, thank you so much for for all that you give us and all that you show us and in your name I pray. God, we just thank you so much for this opportunity to just learn more about you. And I pray um, that as Tom opens his mouth, that your words flow through him. God, I pray that you prepare our hearts and our minds for what we're going to hear and that we don't just listen or hear it. God, that but we apply it to our lives and that we walk it out by faith every single day. God, that we just stand firm in you. And I just pray over Tom and over his mind that you'll just hold it in your hands and you speak through him. Yes, Lord, I just thank you for Tom. And I thank you for the gifts that you've given him to be able to teach, um, at times it seems painful, um, lessons in such an encouraging and challenging way, Lord. And, uh, Lord, we just pray that his words would just not be on our minds, but just tattooed on our hearts that we would just always be reminded of what we're learning, Lord, and that we would begin to turn our heart of stones into heart of flesh for all other worldviews. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you very much. Well, something I want to do at the start here before I jump back into uh, the topic, because I want to give a commercial. I want to do this quickly because that's not what I was asked to come here to do. So um, but I'm going to slip this in here anyway. So for some of you, as you've been going through the things we're talking about this week, you may have found that you're like really interested in this or it's been something you've been interested in before. And you think, how, how could I pursue this more, more understanding this, more uh, you know, deliberate and intentional developing of this Christian worldview? Right? Um, that describes you. We've got a school that we offer in Wyoming that could help you facilitate that. So um, we have a school that was started some years ago. I'm not going to go into all the background on how it came about. But we, it's called the School of Biblical Foundations and Missions. And the point of it really is to help those who come to do the school, to do the program, to really develop those foundations themselves. Um, so they really feel like they, they have a really good grasp of this. And the whole point of that is so that they, they have that platform to stand on as they go and disciple other believers. And also, then we continue to pass that on, and so uh, you know, to help other people, new believers, really grow in their faith. So we talk about things such as the nature of truth, um, biblical foundations for a Christian worldview. Some of the things I'm talking about this week um, are just kind of a little snapshot of some of the things we covered during that couple of week period of time. Apologetics, which is defending other, you know, defending Christianity and how to respond to it in comparison to other worldviews, other religions, and so on. Um, even what other religions are, what other worldviews, what, what do the Hindus believe, what do the Marxists believe, what do the secular humanists believe, what are the, you know, what does, what's Islam all about, okay? We sort of take a look at those perspectives, and uh, all of it with the view of going to the nations and imparting biblical truth, and helping people begin to form and put together and establish their Christian worldview, and so how to communicate these things cross-culturally to people from other cultures that might be different from yours, right? And so it's a 12-week lecture phase. Um, outreach is optional but highly encouraged because usually the things that you're learning during the lecture time go much deeper when you're then forced to, or not forced, but when you then get the opportunity to pass it on to someone else. Right? And so our outreaches typically go to South Asia, and we typically work with you know, churches, other ministries, uh, which are trying to do discipleship of new believers. And so a lot of the outreach is actually doing teaching, discipleship, and that sort of ministry. Right? So if that's something that you're interested in, we run this every fall quarter. Um, usually around the middle of September, and um, yeah, if you're interested, just look us up on the website, and uh, yeah, I'll go from there. Okay, pray about it. 
having you help me get the word out. We run a seminar in the summertime uh, called Reformation Generation. And real quick background on this, on this program, is uh, just in dealing with this whole issue of worldviews. If you remember when we showed the numbers here, 70 hours easy of content, which is set up against knowledge of God in comparison to maybe 45 minutes to an hour and a half of biblical truth and how much it shapes us. You remember earlier in the week, I also mentioned the statistic that about 70% of Christian young people walk away from their faith by the time they're done with university. And so we thought, how can we, you know, knowing these, you know, these, these stats and being aware of this reality, but also knowing, you know, the things that we teach in YWAM, you know, just how, uh, how significant it is. How can we open this up to be a blessing to the churches at large? Because we're hearing people saying, is there a way I can come and learn this stuff? But I don't have time. Maybe I'm not going to take a whole year to do a DTS for six months and then come and do a secondary school for another six months. Maybe they just have a summer while they're already in university. And so we begin to pray about it. And uh, what the Lord is calling us to do a four-week seminar in the summertime, which really zeroes in on some of these topics. You know, things like spiritual disciplines, walk out your own spiritual life, um, you know, kind of like a mini DTS in one week. Um, and then the next three weeks, it's a four-week thing, is focusing on things like apologetics, worldviews, how to respond to these ideas, and the whole point is to not only survive and get by with your faith intact in university, but to actually be confident enough in your foundations that you're actually shining and being a light. Okay? And so uh, we've been doing this for about four or five years, and the people come through just really give us good feedback about how relevant this is. And some of those who've been in university a little while say, I wish I had this before I began. Okay? Um, and so, but this is really because it's a new thing. It's just a seminar. It's not something you get credit for it. DTS is not a prerequisite. We just want to open this up to anybody who's 18 or older. And so if you can think of somebody who's in that position, they're on their way to university or they're in university right now, and they could really benefit by developing a Christian foundation in their worldview, please recommend this to them. Okay, and tell them, hey, there's something that's going on in Maui. It costs about $1,000. That's it um, for the whole thing. Um, and just be a really good way. It's a really intense schedule. It's like something going on morning, afternoon, and evening, and an activity on, on Saturday. And then we continue on with it the next week. Um, so we pack a lot into four-week time. Uh, but most of the people who come here has just been by word of mouth. So if you can think of anybody, it might be something beneficial for you, or you might be able to think of someone back home who could benefit from this. All right? So any questions on either of those two things before I drop the commercial time and move on to the point of the day? Coming back to this, what I want to do today is come back to some of the significance and look at the Christian worldview a little bit more in depth and, and understand even the story from which that whole worldview comes from. As we, had, as we had the different worldviews, we had the Christian worldview, the Eastern worldview, the secular worldview, yes, yesterday talking about the heaviness of that secular worldview. One story I didn't mention yesterday, kind of a, a moment in my life where I feel like I woke up to what was going on to the fact that we are in a battle of ideas. Do you remember those statistics I showed you of how many people were, uh, were slaughtered in the name of this worldview, this ideology? Remember, just the, the stats just kept getting bigger and bigger. Remember that last stat, that one country that had 76 million people were killed in that country. When I was in 11th grade in high school, uh, 17 years old, um, I was in history class, social studies class, and my teacher was... Uh, was one who was very proud of that worldview, just very much I embrace, you know, she was very much embracing of, of Marxism and so on. And uh, one of her heroes was the leader of that country I showed you, okay, that really big country where, you know, so many people died. And uh, she kept singing the praises of this nation, and she kept singing the praises of this whole Marxist communist system. 
And one of our key assignments that quarter or that, that class was to do a paper on this nation. Okay? And just on the, you know, in her mind, you know, how, how wonderful it is. And so uh, I decided to, as I was doing my research, to focus on the death count and how many people were killed in that country because of this ideology. And um, I thought, I'm not sure how this is going to go, but we'll see how it goes, right? Um, so I put that in the paper and just, you know, talk about, you know, some of the, well, not so good things that were happening there. And I'll never forget this. We got the paper back. And you know how teachers, they'll use red ink to make the corrections and put their comments in so you can spot it right away. And so I'm kind of going through the paper, and I see that, that, that statistic of how many people were killed. Okay, it was a little bit different than the one I had on here, um, but modified sense. But it was a very high number, a very high number of people. And, you know, I said, you know, the leader of this country, he's responsible for this many deaths, millions and millions and millions. And she had a red circle around it with an arrow to the margins so I could read her comment about that statistic. And as I see that, just assuming that she's going to deny that statistic or say I'm wrong or, or something like that. And here's what shocked me. Here's her comment. In reference to the fact that in that nation, tens of millions of people were killed, here's what she said. Yes, but he did a lot of good things for the country, too. He did a lot of good things for the country, too. In other words, the fact that roads are put in place and the schools improved excuses the fact that tens of millions of people were killed to establish that system. And I, I, it hit me. I'm like, oh, she knew about this. And I think every high schooler thinks they know more than their teacher. So I assumed I knew more than my teacher did about the history of China. I didn't. She knew about this, just chose not to focus on it. And I remember beginning to think, that's really scary if she thinks that's okay. And I remember getting, I woke up, what else do the professors around me believe? And what are they feeding me? And what am I receiving without filtering? What am I receiving into my way I think without discerning the stuff that I need to reject? Here's that, does that make sense? That's kind of when I woke up and began to move toward what we call critical thinking. What am I hearing? What is going on? Oh, that's, doesn't, that con that's in conflict with what we believe as Christians and so on, right? And so the base foundation to be able to recognize those lofty arguments and opinions which are raised up against the knowledge of God we've been talking about, that passage from uh, 2 Corinthians, is really to be in touch with the story of the Bible and what it's all about. Okay? And sometimes when we go to read the scriptures, some of you may have been feeling maybe you're, you're having a hunger stirred in you, uh, to abide in the scriptures more than you have been. But this is an intimidating book, okay? It's a study Bible, so it looks even scarier, but that's a lot of stuff. Okay? It's scary. How do I, where do I even begin? Okay. I want to make a suggestion. A good place to begin is to be familiar with the big picture, and then when you go and read the details, you'll know how those details fit the big picture. And so what I want to do this morning is go over that big picture and then really zero in and focus on the point of the biblical story. Okay, and so what I want to do here is I want to put, in a sense, a timeline with different periods of biblical history and put the key events in sort of a chronological order so we can follow the storyline. And be, as we do that, we can maybe begin to trace some of the key things that God's trying to reveal to us in the ways he's been working throughout history. Right, so we'll just do that. If this might help you have a piece of paper, turn it sideways, because there's going to be a lot of content going on this board here in the next couple hours. Um, I'll just put it in different... In different categories of history, 
Um, the first one I'll just put is a period that takes place in the book of Genesis. Not exclusively in that book, but basically the things recorded in the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, we just have some key events. We already talked about a few of these a couple days ago, but we have the whole creation account. Everything's made good. And then we have the sad story of the fall. Sin comes in the world and disrupts everything. Uh, maybe I should switch colors here. Um, at the same time that we had the fall, we also had the promise that was given in Genesis 3.15. Now maybe something I want to point out here. When that promise was given in Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, that was the first preview where God's trying to get us to look towards the future to the hope that is coming. Now, at this point in time, that promise is out of focus. We're not really sure what it is. And the best analogy or analogy I think of is uh, if, if the prophetic picture in the Old Testament of Jesus could be you know, symbolized by a camera, maybe one of those professional cameras with a long telephoto lens. And so maybe I'm way back here at this point of history, and I'm looking toward there happens to be a cross in that corner of the room. So I'm looking into the future where that cross is. But it's not just the other side of the room. It's a long ways away. Historically, it's a long ways away, and we're not even sure what it is. At this point in time, Genesis 3.15, this prophetic camera is picked up, and it's pointed in the right direction, but it's out of focus, and the zoom is it's, it's way back. So you don't know what you're looking at, but you do know that whatever is in the center of this picture, this is where hope lies. This is where only hope lies. And as we go through the biblical story, that prophetic picture, which started here by this promise in 3.15, the focus knob goes a little bit more in focus. And then sometimes it zooms in a little bit. And God keeps giving a prophecy, a picture, a procedure, a ritual, stories, which all begin to shape this picture and this understanding of who Jesus is and what he's going to do. And so uh, maybe I should even change the timeline. At this point, the promise 3.15, the line really should turn red because it's all pointing toward this future event, cross, and resurrection of Jesus. Yeah, that's really the focus of the whole Testament from this point on, unpacking the story of redemption. But we're told in the story that uh, in generations following Adam and Eve, the world gets so wicked that the Lord says, I must destroy it with a flood. And so he, he basically hits the reset button on the human race to start over because wickedness is so out of control. We'll come back to that. Following this, the next generation becomes so wicked, um, we come to the story of, the, of nations, the Tower of Babel, where in order to prevent the spread of evil and wickedness on such a fast scale, God comes down and confuses the languages, and this is where we get the explanation of all the people groups. And they begin to scatter throughout the earth. All right, we'll come back to that. These first four events really sets the big context picture of the human race, puts it in place. After this, the story zeroes in, it changes a little bit, and instead of focusing on just humanity in general, it really zeroes in on this man named Abraham and his family line. And God comes and he makes a really amazing and important, significant covenant with Abraham. We'll just call this the Abrahamic covenant. We introduced this the other day. This is where he says, through you and your descendants shall all peoples of the earth be blessed. This is one of those focus knobs on the prophetic camera. We know that someone from the family line of Abraham is going to be used to reach out and bless the nations, okay, the nations that scattered back here at the Tower of Babel. Then the story gets passed on through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, whose name is later changed to Israel, 
and the last numbers of ch- or last chapters of Genesis focus on the life of Joseph. And sometime between Genesis and the book of Exodus, we have the slavery in Egypt that comes. And the book of Genesis really is foundational. As we are told the story, all those answers to the worldview questions come into play. Just those first few chapters, and then it gets expanded on as we go through the story. Then we come to the period of the book of Exodus. And that, of course, is the story of Moses. Um, how he confronts Pharaoh with the, uh, I'm going to actually put the burning bush here. That's a very important turning point. Then we have the story of the ten plagues. Passover. Red Sea. Uh, the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. And then the wandering in the wilderness. Spell it correctly. All right. The people of Israel, if you remember the story, they went in under the um, lifetime of Joseph because they're escaping a famine. They settled in Egypt. Time goes by. They multiply very quickly. The new Pharaoh does not understand who these people are. He just knows they're growing very quickly. And so he enslaves the whole family, which has now basically become a whole nation. They're in slavery for a long time. God raises up Moses to be the one who's going to be the instrument of deliverance. And so Moses has this amazing encounter with God at the burning bush. And he knows it's almighty God. He knows it's the God of his, his great, you know, four, forebears, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he doesn't know his name. He's like, God, who are you? All the other tribes and people groups have names for their gods. Moloch, Ashtaroth, Ra, Isis, whatever it would be. They all have these gods and goddesses. We don't even know your name. And it's interesting, names in the Old Testament are very important because names were not just labels. Sometimes in our generation and in our culture, a name is simply a label to distinguish you from the other people on the planet. At this time, names, the actual word that was used for your name, had very much significance in the meaning of it. And so when you said your name, people also understood the meaning of that word. Does that make sense? It might describe your personality, it might describe your destiny, whatever it would be. Well, gods and goddesses, they had names which basically were descriptive of who and what they were. They didn't have a name for God Almighty other than he's the one true God or the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God comes to Moses. Moses says, who are you? And he says, I am. I exist. I'm not identified in relation to anything else. Everything else finds its relation to me. Profound explanation right there. And he says, I am that I am. I'm not describing anything else. I just exist, the self-existent one. Powerful, okay? God calls him to go and confront Pharaoh and says, let the people of Israel go. Remember the story of the ten plagues? Ah, we'll, come back, we'll come back to this morning in a different way in a minute. Um, but uh, by the end of those ten plagues, the people are so um, ready to give up, but Pharaoh's like, nope, I'm going to hang on, I'm going to hang on. And this last plague is the death over the firstborn, where God says on a certain night, the night is a specific day in the calendar, Nisan 14, the 14th day of the first month of the Jewish calendar. There's going to be a plague that's going to come over the nation, and the firstborn of every family is going to die. Horrendous. And he says, the same thing will happen to you Israelites unless you do something. He said, there's one way to escape this. There's one way to be saved. You must take a lamb that is perfect, one-year-old without spot or blemish, have it approved by the priest on Nisan 10. Several days later, on Nisan 14, Kill that lamb at twilight, around 3 o'clock in the afternoon, 
and take the blood and put it on the doorposts of your house. And when the plague comes through, when the spirit comes through to bring death to the households, it will see the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and it will pass over you and everyone in your home will be saved. And so the Passover becomes a very key picture looking forward towards the cross because the blood of Christ is what covers over us and provides salvation and protection for us from the judgment that we deserve. And so that ritual becomes very, very key for the Israelites. Um, so the people are released. Remember the story? Pharaoh sends his armies go after the people as they're passing through the Red Sea. God destroys the army by closing up the waters of the Red Sea. The people are so anxious to go into the promised land because they're only a few weeks away of walking. They're almost there. And God says, you're not ready yet. I need to take you to DTS first. And their DTS was meant to be, be about a year long. Where they camp out at the basis of Mount Sinai, and God basically gives them his worldview. He gives them instructions on how to live life in virtually every aspect of it. Here's how your family should look. He gives them instructions. Here's how your worship should look. Here's how your education should be done. Here's how you should govern each other. Here's principles for that. Here's principles for how you do commerce and trade amongst each other. All those spheres of influence we talked about, God unpacks it while they're there at Mount Sinai. He's saying, here's how you live life correctly in this fallen world. And if you understand that, you go in and settle as a nation, you'll be blessed if you do things my way. So they're going to school, going to their DTS for uh, yeah, almost just about a year. They're getting ready to go into the promised land. You remember the story? I'll slip this in here. The 10 spies or 12 spies. Sorry. Um, the 12 spies go in. 10 spies say, we're all going to die. Two spies say, let's trust God and go for it. The assembly listens to the word of the ten spies and say, there's giants in the land. They're too powerful for us. Rather than listening to Joshua and Caleb, they say, you know what? Yeah, there's obstacles. Yes, there's challenges. Yes, there's threats. But our God is the one true God. Let's trust him. But no, we don't trust him. And God says, because of that disbelief, you're going to wander around the wilderness for 40 years until a whole new generation arises who's been instructed in my word. Rather than people who've been Egyptianized in their worldview, I want people who are basically saturated in the truth of God's word. So teach the next generation, and then they'll come in and take inheritance to the promised land. So that all happens under the leadership of Joshua, where the people um, come in, they conquer the land. I'll say conquer and settle the land. And they're finally, after a very long time, they're back in the promised land that God had promised them way back at the time of Abraham. Okay? Things are finally good. They're like, okay, we've finally received our inheritance. Sadly, something happens, and this is a point I want to make sure we don't miss. We're about to go into the next period. The period of Joshua was one of their glory times. They're serving the Lord well. We come to the next period of time, which is called the period of the book of Judges. We were told that what happened between the lifetime of Joshua and the period of time of Judges is we're told that the people served God all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. Cool. And then another generation arose who did not know the Lord or the things that he had done for Israel. And that simple phrase gives a preview of the next 300 and some years of darkness that falls across this whole nation. They forgot who the Lord was and what he'd done for Israel. 
as wonderful as this generation was, it appears they forgot to pass or failed to pass the baton on to the next generation. You guys, it only takes one generation to lose it. That's what we can learn here. Here's what I want to say to you guys. Just a real quick preaching moment here. As God moves you forward and you begin to start families and such, understand that one of the most important ministries you have, perhaps the most important, is to impart the faith that you have to your children. Because if you don't, it will stop. Does that make sense? We must impart it to them. It's more important than becoming a pastor of a church. If we're forsaking our children in favor of whatever our ministry calling is or a vocation, something's messed up. Does that make sense? We still need to pursue those vocations because God needs us in the spheres of influence. But the most fundamental responsibility is to our own families. Make sure that you raise your children up in the admonition of the Lord. We get to see from biblical history what happened when a whole generation failed to do that. And so the book of Judges is characterized by what biblical historians call the sin cycle. They go into this horrible cycle of just following it from one sin to another. Okay, just, just getting worse and worse. You get this idea that each generation gets worse. And uh, what happens in the cycle is the people turn away from God. Because they turn away from God, God takes his hand of protection off of them. Foreign nations come in terrorize them, oppress them, conquer them. And in their misery, they cry out to God and say, God, we are sorry, please deliver us. And God, in his grace and mercy, does so every single time. He comes and says, okay, you've repented. He raises up a leader called a judge, and this leader will go and deliver them from their enemies. And they get comfortable. All right, things are cool. They turn their back on God and go back to worshiping demons, following the ways of the cultures around them, by the way. This these couple books here, you guys, actually the whole thing is all basically a, a description of how the people of God were engaged in worldview warfare constantly. Are you going to resist the spirit of the age? Well, Moses did good. Joshua did good. Other times they did not. They gave in to the spirit of the age, the way it was operating at that time. And we get to see the troubles that happened with that. But the cycle goes on for 340 years. The people had the wrong understanding as to why these bad things are happening to them. They thought the reason why all these bad things are happening to us is because we don't have a king like all the other nations around us. And I think this is interesting. One of the things that the spirit of the age often seems to do is to tell us that our savior is the state in some way, shape, or form. So these people said, rather than God being our savior, we need to have a king, one guy who we'll give all power to. Basically, they said, we want a dictator will protect us from our enemies, and he'll take care of everything. And a warning is given. If you have a kingship, here's how that power can be abused. We don't care. We want it. And God says to Samuel, he says, we will give the people what they want. This is another thing to keep in mind. God will often give us what we want. Does that make sense? We really want something that might not be good for us. It seems like sometimes he will give it to us. He gave these people what they wanted. But in his redemption, in his grace, he says, this kingship is not a good idea, but if we do it my way, it can be a good idea. But this kingship is going to be different than any other kingships back at the time. He said, the king of my nation, my people Israel, is going to be a king who is submitted and who is surrendered to me. And so as the kingship is set up, coming over here to, uh, we'll call this United Monarchy, United Kingdom. As the kingship is set up, God says, 
the king of Israel is to meditate on the word of God day and night. As he's coming in to becoming king, one of his first tasks is to write a copy by his own hand of the scroll. So the Old Testament is just written at that point. By hand, you copy the whole thing. When you copy something by hand, you learn it well. So he writes his own copy of the Bible, and then he meditates on it day and night. And God says, and if he follows those precepts, this will be a good system. Because the king in this situation really isn't the king, David, King Solomon, or King Saul. It's God Almighty. And the king is seen as a servant of God, and he's there to serve the people by executing justice and righteousness. Does that make sense? So the kingship in Israel was not this all-powerful, the king doing anything he wants. It was the king submitted to the law of God. And so we have uh, the first king, of course, was Saul. Started out okay, but then began to do things his own way instead of God's way. And God says, you can't do it that way. That might be the way the Canaanites do it. That might be the way the Philistines do it. But my king will submit to me and my law. Saul, you have forfeited the right to the throne. I'm going to give it to this other guy named David. And then God not only puts David on the throne, he gives David this amazing promise. He makes a covenant with him. He says, David, the right to rule will remain with your family forever. Your family line will have the right to sit in the throne of Israel forever. Now, if your descendants mess up and turn against me, they will forfeit it for a time. And I'll restore it to a future generation. But the right to rule remains with you forever. Now, the ultimate fulfillment of this, of course, is in Jesus Christ, who is a descendant of the family line of David, who's not just the king of Israel. He's the king of the whole universe, and he'll be forever and ever. Think of how powerful that promise is. When he said, David, you'll have your descendants sitting on the throne forever, he really meant forever, all eternity. Because one of David's descendants is no less than the creator himself. Mind-blowing. Okay? Anyway, the Davidic covenant comes through. He passes it on to his son Solomon. Solomon, again, does things kind of okay. He kind of reigns over Israel's glory years. Then he begins to, his mind begins to wander into other systems, to other gods. You know, his wives allow him, he, they bring in these other influences from evil systems, and he begins to introduce false ideas, wrong ideas, wrong worship into the life of the nation. When he dies, there's a split. Um, his son, who becomes the new king, begins to rule like a tyrant. And so 10 of the 12 tribes say, we've had enough, and they break away. And so at this point, the country is in two parts. It's the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. So the nation of Israel is now two separate nations with two separate kings and so on. They're in conflict with each other. They're in conflict with other nations. It's a really bad period of time all the way around. Um, some of the things that happened during this period of time is uh, when you look at the, the cycle of the kings in these nations, to the north, you have the sense of uh, the kings, you look at the whole line, every single one of their kings are bad. They never had a good king. Now, God had promised back here to people like David. He promised these things to Moses. He said, if you turn away from me, my hand of protection will come off of you. I still love you. My promises are good, but these generations may forfeit my blessings. And he said, it is only a matter of time. So the northern kingdom, they have bad kings, which lead to people of wickedness for 200 years. At the end of those 200 years, God raises up a nation and allows it, the kingdom of Assyria to come in there and to punish the nation. Basically destroys it and brings all the survivors into exile, takes them as slaves back to the nation, the kingdom of Assyria. The southern kingdom, 
had about eight good kings during their history. So every once in a while they have bad king, bad king, bad king, and then a good king who try to get people's gaze back on God. And maybe another good king, and then bad king, bad king, bad king. Eventually the southern kingdom becomes worse than the north. And so about 135 years later, they go into exile because the kingdom of Babylon comes in and wipes them out. put your judgment okay, on them for what they've done. And the biggest part of the judgment was to be taken off the land because the land was so precious to them. This moves us into this period of exile. One thing I want to say here about the judgment, I should make sure I add this in here. And we'll, we'll come back perhaps and just take a little glimpse as to how bad this was. But if you remember back, I didn't focus on this too much. And this is a, sometimes a part of the story that troubles us as Christians in our generation. Interestingly, this wasn't a question about 20, 30 years ago, but today it's a big question. Why did God command the Israelites to slaughter the Canaanites? They call it this problem of genocide, which is commanded in the Bible. It's really hard for us to understand in our context. Uh, you know, some of the reasons that were given is because of how wicked those people were. God says they were so wicked that I'm going to use the Israelites. This doesn't, may not make it feel better, but this is some of the reasons. They're so wicked, I'm going to use the Israelites to bring destruction on them. These people are so corrupt that we need to completely wipe them off the land. That's what God said. Their wickedness had got that bad. Almost like he's equating it back to the time of the flood when he had to wipe out the human race back here. When it comes to this period of judgment, God says to his own people, the apple of his eye, you have become worse than the Canaanites whom I commanded you to destroy generations ago. You're even worse than them. Your sins have exceeded the wickedness of those people. And he says, in my holiness, I cannot withhand my judgment. I will not allow this to continue. And I'm going to bring judgment upon you. And just before he brings his judgment, he says, but hold on. I need to tell you something. I want to give you hope. And he makes a new covenant with them through the prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah receives this message from God just before they go into judgment. And God says, Jeremiah, tell the people this. I'm going to put a new heart in you. One day, things are going to change so much where I'm going to take your heart of stone, Ezekiel adds to this, and turn it into a heart of flesh. And you're going to want to serve me from within. This is the ultimate fulfillment of this covenant way back here to Abraham. And so God promises the new covenant. He gives hope just before he brings a judgment. And the people cling to that hope, which is finally has its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So when the judgment comes, the people go into exile. They're there for 70 years. And they have people like Ezekiel and Daniel prophesying during that time. When the 70 years are up, they get restored back to the land under prophets or the, or the leadership of guys like Ezra and Nehemiah. All right. A lot of stuff we didn't cover. This is a big picture. Now, this is intimidating, a lot of stuff, but you guys, this is basically the key historical events of the Old Testament. If you unpack these a little bit, you'll have a bit more understanding of the storyline. I saw a hand over there. Yes. It means, it means the, uh, the Babylonians came and took most of them and brought them back to Babylon as servants. And so when it means exile, it means they were not on their land. They still had their communities, but they're now basically by force brought as refugees to the, to the nation that conquered them and forced to live there and do manual labor and so on. And so that means they were, yeah, they're taken off the land. Seven years after that, the leaders of those empires said, you can go back. And they started having migrations going back to Israel, back to Jerusalem. And under Ezra and Nehemiah, a very important question, yeah. 
these guys, in a sense, restored the people to living, restored the city, rebuilt the temple, and so on, and, and got people back on track with following God. Um, at this point in time, they're very humbled. They realize going the path of rebellion against God is not a good thing. But most of their history has been a pretty difficult time. Most of the story of the Old Testament is a story of God's people rebelling against God. Now, when we come to a break here, in between the Old and New Testaments, there's about 400 years here. We'll call this the 400. Sometimes it's called silent years. What do you mean by silent years is because there's not a whole record of God speaking a whole lot of prophetic things to people during this period of time. They see God working, but they're like, where is he? Where's this prophetic voice? We haven't heard it in so long. Ten of the tribes were exiled here, and they were scattered. Now, little remnants of them all came back, but primarily at this point in time, it's the southern kingdom of Judah. So two, two tribes primarily, but there were members of all the tribes that were in the mix. Because they were all at one point, there were always survivors up behind, but in general, most of them were taken off the land for a long period of time. Yeah. So we come to, after the silent years are over, the silence is broken when the angel comes and announces that John the Baptist is going to be born and so on. Um, and then the New Testament, of course, focuses primarily on the life of Christ. We have his, his birth, his life, teachings, his death, and of course, his resurrection, okay? And the whole focus of the scriptures has been zeroing in on this moment of the cross. After Jesus goes into heaven, ascends, we have the period of Acts, and the whole point is taking the message of God, the message of redemption, to Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the world. And by the way, we are still an extension of this. This is still going. We're part of this part of the story. Basically, the biblical story ends with this anticipation of what's coming when God restores all things. But until it happens, we are part of taking his truth and this message in God's kingdom to our immediate surroundings, our nations, the nations we hate, and to the ends of the world. And that's what we're here as why we're We're basically trying to fulfill the commission that God left with us in the, Old, or the New Testament. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, we went over this really quickly. All right? I wish I had time to unpack all these things. But what I do want to show you is a thread that's here, okay? a really significant thing. Coming back to the Old Testament, when that fall, when the sin happened, the promise is given in Genesis 3.15. That opening promise is then ex- is expanded in this covenant that God makes with Abraham, where he says, in you all peoples of the earth shall be blessed. And he says, Abraham, I'm making this promise to you unconditionally. This is an eternal promise. This is something I have for you. I'm going to bless your people group. Now, some people ask this question, why did God pick this nation of Israelites and give them so much blessing that seems like so much favoritism? The answer, biblically, is to why God is blessing the people of Abraham is because God wants to bless all the other nations, your people group, my people group. Basically, they're called to be the ones who bring this hope. They are the ones who carry this message to all peoples of the world. Does that make sense? And as they do so, yes, they have some blessings. But the point is they have a mission, a historical mission to bring God's redemption to the world. Now that promise gets amplified, gets more understanding when we come to things like the law of Moses. And we get much more understanding as to what this is all about. Um, Things like Passover become a huge um, just picture of how this redemption is going to be accomplished, that God talked about to Adam, that God talked about to Abraham, and so on. This covenant um, 
Abrahamic covenant gets more understanding with the covenant that God makes to David, where he realizes that this person who's going to bring freedom and hope and blessing to the nations is going to come from the David family line, and he's going to be the rightful king. And that rightful king will eventually establish this whole new system where he's going to change the hearts of humanity. Instead of being so rigid and so against God, he's going to change them from within. And all of this finds its fulfillment on the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, many of us, when we go to Sunday school, we might learn these stories randomly. We might hear the story of, you know, Abraham nearly sacrificing Isaac in the mountain. And we see it as an isolated story. Then the next week, you might hear the story of, you know, little Zacchaeus who climbed up the sycamore tree. And then the next week, they might be back talking about life of Jonah. Then they go back to Adam and Eve. In all of those stories, when we hear them growing up, there's good morals, and there's good lessons that we can take from every story individually, but here's what we often fail to understand. All of those stories are more like chapters in a much bigger scheme, a much bigger story. And they all have a piece to unfold God's revelation. And that's the part that we often miss out. That history is going somewhere. It has from the beginning. And it's this conflict of the truth of God and the lies of the enemy being played out on a human stage. And this battle is for the souls of men and women. Men and women were made in God's image, and God wants to redeem them and restore them. But he's going to let them have their own way if they want to. He's going to let them reject him if they so choose. Now, let me come back over this and just unpack a few more things here. Um, Some things I want us to keep in mind as we're thinking about the story. This is going somewhere. Hopefully this all come together before we're done today. The revelation of God that we receive throughout the witness of Scripture tells us many things about his nature and character, a few things I want to focus on right now because I think they are so fundamental. We've already talked about the fact that God is infinite and personal. When we had that worldview category column over here, we mentioned that God is infinite, which means he has no limit. He is also personal, which means he's relational. Now, in that, very closely related to these things is the fact that God is a God of holiness, he's a holy God, and he's a God of love. Stare at that for just a moment and let that blaze into your conscience. Because most people, when they look at this, when they think about God, they only think the love part, they don't think the holy part. Does that make sense? Love is extremely popular in our generation among Christians. Holiness, not so much. And here's why this is so important, thinking about worldview. Remember our interpretive grid through which we look at things through. If we're only reading the Bible through the grid of love, 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 and we forget holiness, we get into all sorts of questions that we simply can't answer as to how God operates in the Bible. But why would he do this? Why would he do that if he's a God of love? And the answer was every time is he's just as much a God of infinite holiness as he is a God of infinite love. And we like to separate these things as if they're opposites on a spectrum. Please look at me. You need to see this. God's holiness and God's love are like this. You cannot separate them. We do this all the time. And so we think love or holiness. No, it's love and holiness. You cannot separate them because he is God. And he is a God of infinite holiness. He's also a God of infinite love. And when you have this grid, when you have this understanding of God's nature as you read the Bible, these stories makes so much more sense because so oftentimes you see the way that God is reacting to the people is in a way that maintains the integrity of his holiness but also demonstrates his love at the same time because he always responds in a way that's consistent with who he is. Does that make sense? 
And so you think, what about the judgment? The judgment, oh my goodness, it's just, it just seems like he's so angry. Well, that's coming from the sense that God is holy. And as a holy God, he will not put up with sin. And as a holy God, he will respond to sin in a way that maintains the integrity of that infinite holiness and purity. But he loves these people who've dug this pit of sin and jumped into it and wants to rescue them. Not because he's required to or obligated to, because he wants to, because he loves them. And so you see, oftentimes in the midst of the judgment, you see these promises of hope or these ways of rescue. Think of the flood, devastating thing. Judgment came, response of the holiness of God. Salvation of Noah's family through the ark, demonstration of his love and mercy. You see this pattern over and over and over again. But if you're excluding infinite holiness from your understanding of God, you're going to have a lot of confusion when you're coming to read the scriptures. Let me read you a few uh, passages from scripture here. Um, Just emphasizing, you know, love and grace and this sort of thing. Now for a brief moment, grace has been shown from the Lord, our God, that our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving inner knowledge. The Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Another passage says, God gives grace to the afflicted. Thus says the Lord of hosts, dispense justice, practice kindness and compassion each to his brother. The Lord's loving kindness never ceases. His compassions never fail. The Lord did not set his love on you or choose you because you're more numbered than any of the peoples, for you are the fewest of all peoples. Know, therefore, that the Lord, your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. Those are all Old Testament passages. Sometimes you think Old Testament is just judgment. It's just judgment. It's wrath. No, you keep seeing all these incredible pictures of God's loving kindness and compassion and mercy. Let me read a few from the New Testament. We are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. Another one, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. He will drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations and rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. New Testament passages. You see both the manifestation of the holiness of God and the love of God in both in Old Old Testament. Does that make sense? Because he's the same God. And somehow this idea has crept in that God in the Old Testament is angry and the God of the New Testament is just sort of this, I don't know, this big plush toy. That's a fearsome thing to come to the holiness of God. Coming back to this, I want to just focus a little bit on... Like really trying to take our imagination, what does it mean that God is infinite? What does it mean that he is holy? And I honestly believe that you can't truly appreciate the love and mercy and grace of God if you do not have, first of all, a revelation of his infinite holiness. Does that make sense? Because then you see what might look to us like a contrast. It's not really a contrast, but when you see this holiness, just get a glimpse of it. You realize, oh my goodness, we have nothing to stand on. We have nothing to appeal to. Nobody does to justify ourselves and to say we don't deserve whatever comes our way. We have nothing. And when you really get that, 
and you get a glimpse of the acknowledgement and the reality of your own sin, then the mercy and the love and the grace of God is so beautiful, it is absolutely overwhelming. Pastor, a guy did an internship at my church a long time ago. He had this whole series of sermons that was fantastic. It was called Righteousness, the Other Side of Grace. And he had this one phrase in this one message which marked me forever. He said, God's grace is only as beautiful to us as sin is repulsive. God's grace is only as beautiful to us to the extent that sin is repulsive to us. Because if he says, if you don't see your sin in light of God's holiness, you're not going to understand why grace is so beautiful. I like that analogy of the sun. It's the source of life. It's purifying, but for those who can't stand it, it's dangerous, isn't it? And so this infinite holiness of God is something that it's hard to even get our minds around because we don't have many things to compare it to. But much of the Old Testament is God trying to help us understand what his holiness is by the contrast of how easy it is to become impure. And so sometimes you might read the Old Testament like, okay, why are all these rules about what you can't touch and what you can eat, what you can't eat? God's wanting to paint a picture of them of, this world is so messed up by sin, and it's really easy to be con- contaminated. And to become clean is a really big deal, and it costs a lot. That makes sense? Does that kind of help? Where we, yeah. Um, and so, but this idea of that God, that infinity of God, or that, that holiness of God is so huge. Um, I just want us to get our mind around uh, just sense that God is holy, he's love. But this whole concept of infinity, we can't even imagine what that is. Limitless purity, limitless love, limitless holiness. Okay? The best we can do is compare it to things which God's created. We have to start from our perspective and try to understand how big this is, how big he really is. All right? Let me just go through some photos really quickly for you and some, some passages. Um, I want to compare, just understand a little bit about God's holiness by comparing it to the thing that he's made, okay, the stars. First Kings 8.27 tells us that heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain God. He's bigger than all that. Okay? Psalm 147, verse 4 through 5, tells us that he determines the number of stars. He gives names to all of them. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is infinite. So to begin to even understand the sense that God is so big, he's so infinite, we can't, he's bigger than the high, heaven, the highest heaven, but how big is the highest heaven? Heaven can refer to what we think of as a celestial area where God is. But it also can be referenced to just the whole universe, all the stuff that's out there. Let's just start in our own neck of the woods. We'll just do this really quickly. Um, here we are. You can see uh, you can see Kona. You can see the Maui base and so on. Um, we're on this planet. Um, a lot of you guys might not realize we are the most isolated group of islands in the world from any late major landmass. Okay? And yet it was just a matter of you know maybe a day of flying or half a day of flying for most of you guys to get here. Right? So this earth is huge, um, but we can somehow maybe begin to imagine how big this planet is, right? It's almost 8,000 miles across. Um, that's about 12,000 kilometers across. Right? That's big, but it's, we can maybe begin to understand that. Right? Zooming out a little bit, we get to see how huge it is. Now, the reason why this satellite taking this photo can even see the Earth is because there's light reflecting off it. That light, of course, is coming from the sun. That sun is 93 million miles away from us. Um, now, the light from the sun is traveling at 186,000 miles per second. That's 300,000 kilometers per second. That's how fast it goes. The travel distance of 93 million miles, uh, I forget what that is in kilometers, takes about eight minutes. 
Okay, so we, are in a sense, are eight minutes of traveling at light speed from the sun. Um, now, 150 million kilometers, that's how far away we are from the sun. Now, the sun itself is absolutely massive. It's hard to even comprehend this. Here's a uh, photo of the comparison. That's how big we are compared to our sun. You could fit the earth inside the sun, like, I think it's a million and a half times. It's just, now we can begin to understand this size. And we're just in our neighborhood this little area that we are in, the, in this corner of the universe, right? Even compared to some of the other planets, okay? You've got, you've got the sun, of course, you've got Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Neptune, Saturn, and I'll, I'll stop. I'm still not Neptune. Jupiter, I'll, yeah. won't want to say that other one there. Okay, so um, the light, though, traveling from the sun, our, next, our closest planet to us, the next one out, is Mars. Mars is 13 minutes of light travel from the sun. The next one is 43 minutes from the sun. Jupiter is way, way, way out there. We can't comprehend this, this distance already. Okay, we're kind of lost on this. Um, Saturn, my son's favorite one, is even further, 80 minutes away. The nearest star to our sun is four and a half years out of traveling at, the light, at light speed. Now, these stars, these suns and our suns, are just three of 100 billion stars that's in this little cluster called the galaxy. And they think our galaxy looks something like this. A cluster of 100 billion different suns all clustered together. And in this galaxy, we see these amazing things which are so beautiful to us with the new equipment that we have. You know, these uh, big gas clouds and um, you know, stars that have exploded in the past, things that have just, just such incredibly beautiful wonders and here's what I think is cool about this. Up until like the last 10 years, no one saw these things except God. We now have the equipment to see these wonders. And I can almost wonder if God's saying, oh, I'm so excited. They finally get to enjoy this beauty that I've had there waiting for them for a long time. And our generation gets to witness it and gets to capture photographs and see this stuff. Um, things are just incredible. Okay? Now, our galaxy is not the only one. I remember our galaxy has about 100 billion stars. This one, there's another one taking a picture of, also has about that same amount. And is if you were to take these telescopes and point at different parts of the sky, you realize that there's a lot of galaxies out there. This picture is crazy to me because every spot of light you see is not a star, it's a whole galaxy. And each galaxy having on average 100 billion stars in it. It just goes deeper and deeper and deeper the more you, more you look out there. Um, and these galaxies are all in different, you know, sizes and configurations, and each one just seems to be very unique, um, so far away from us. Here's another one. All these dots of light in here are galaxies. Now, from what we can see and what we can observe, I've heard the estimate is that there are 100 billion galaxies in the universe, and each one of those 100 billion galaxies about a 100 billion stars in them. That means they can kind of calculate that. They think there's around um, the number of stars in the galaxy. They kind of calculate that. They think it's one with 21 zeros behind it. I don't even think we have a name for that number. Um, but one times 10 to the 21st power. That's how many stars we have in the universe. And just think, keeping this in mind, you guys, I want to come back to this timeline here real quickly. In the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, this is explaining just that real quick snapshot we took of some photos. Or, you know, just looking how big, trying to imagine how big this universe is. We can't even comprehend it. 
There's so many stars, 1 and 10 to the 21st power. In Genesis' account, as he's going through the creation, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 16, it says this. He made the stars also. That's it. Just almost as if it thought, you know, God thought, I should probably add that in there so people understood I did all that. So it gets like one phrase. God made the stars also. Almost as if it's put in as an afterthought in the account. And after it goes through that, what does it zero in? Please understand the significance of this. I would love to hear more about that. But the focus of God's revelation is now on his redemption of mankind. It's on us. As I said this the other day, the stars, as beautiful as they are, they don't comprehend anything. We comprehend them. They are not made in his image. We are. And so God's concern is the human race. Isn't that mind-blowing? And we're just to the 16th verse of the narrative. We've talked about the sense. Keep that idea of holiness in mind, that idea of this incredible sense of God's, God's grace and God's justice. And that is the opening understanding we should have as you read the story. This infinite God, who is a God of infinite holiness and infinite love, has a plan to redeem the human race and bring us back to himself so we can enjoy that fellowship forever. And that's the story of the Bible. That's what weaves the whole Old Testament together. And by the time you get to the end of the Old Testament, that prophetic camera that I was telling you about is zeroing in more and more and more on one particular person who is the foundation of all of history. It's not just the story of the Bible that focuses on the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's all of human history focuses on this event. Everything zeroes in on what happened here. That's why it's important to really have a deep understanding of what God is intending, what he's trying to reveal, what he's trying to teach us through all of this. This is probably a good place to pause, and we'll try to unpack this more after the break. Um, Lord, I just want to say thank you for your incredible revelation, Lord. We can't even begin to understand infinity. We can't understand our own creation that we live in, the things that you created, Lord, how big it is. And yet you go so much more beyond that. And the fact that you and your infinite holiness have chosen in your infinite love to reach out to us and to provide a way for us to come back into fellowship with you. Lord, blow us away with that reality. Give us a deep understanding of that as much as we can possibly comprehend. And I pray that you even take these things and as we focus more on who you are personally after the break, Lord, that you would really bring a better just understanding of who you are. Amen. All right, well, let's uh, keep going here. we got a lot I want to cover um, before we're done this morning. Uh, just reflecting back on the story a little bit and on the uh, this big picture outline that we have as we're just putting some of the key events of the Old Testament and how they all converge on the life of Jesus. We've already been introducing and trying to make sure we have at the forefront of our mind the idea of God's infinite holiness and infinite love simultaneously. Not one or the other, both ideas at the same time. Right? And so as we go through, we see how God's interacting with people that responds in a way that maintains the integrity of his holiness, but also expresses the depth of his love, compassion, and mercy. When we come to, uh, especially this period of time where the Israelites, God's people, God's chosen people who had a mission and a calling, how they keep rejecting God over and over and over again. By the way, to the point of doing child sacrifice, God's people were doing sacrifices just outside of the city wall of Jerusalem. 
and they're worshiping demonic gods in the temple courts in Jerusalem. Think back of the, that animation about the holiness of God and the Holy of Holies. God's people were doing sacrifices and um, worshiping demonic gods right in proximity to that, showing an awful lot of arrogance. And there's a metaphor that um, presents itself in the Old Testament, which helped the Israelites understand God's judgment and wrath. And it's a metaphor of a cup, a cup of wrath. Let me show you a picture. I'll just kind of get an image in our mind. Different passages refer to this. Um, one of them is from Psalm 75. There's other ones as well. Jeremiah 25, Habakkuk 2 talks about this. But Jeremiah 75 says, It is God who judges. He brings one down. He exalts another. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. Okay. Here's the idea of this metaphor. Um, let me grab my coffee cup here just so I have something in my hand so I feel like I'm talking about this. This idea that in God's hand is his cup. And as a people group, as a nation, sins, they fill up that cup with their sin. Okay, so the wine is symbolic of their sin that's being poured into this cup, this cup of wrath. Now it's interesting, that cup of wrath, they are storing up wrath for themselves as they sin. Now eventually that cup gets full. And when that get, cup gets full and begins to overflow, God pours out his wrath on the people. But understand, why is the cup filled up to begin with? Who filled it? We did, the people. And the fact that judgment doesn't, doesn't come right away is because of God's mercy. He's giving opportunity to repent. But eventually there becomes a threshold in which the wickedness is so out of control, God says, I cannot tolerate this, I will pour this out upon the people. And so this idea of this cup that's full, it comes to uh, especially this period of history where God says the people have filled their cup, and he pours out his wrath upon the people. There's this really troubling chapter in Jeremiah chapter, um, Jeremiah chapter 7. We're not going to read this, let me just kind of paraphrase for you what happened here. But Jeremiah has this vision, and God's giving him these... these uh, just his word, his expressing his heart on his response to the wickedness of the people. And there's this one phrase where he's, he basically goes to the list. Here's what the people of Israel are doing. Tell them to repent. Call them to repentance. Call them to repentance. And eventually gets to the point where God says to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, do not intercede with me anymore for the people. I will not listen to you if you do. Think about that. This God of grace and compassion, eventually it got so bad that God says, you know what, Jeremiah, it's too late. Stop praying. It won't do any good at this point. Not because he's a God of hate, because he's a God of holiness. And I will not allow this sin to continue because it's so destructive. And I'm going to pour out my wrath upon these people, upon man, upon beast, upon everything, for their sinfulness is so great. And so that idea of this cup of wrath, the delay is God's mercy, but the wrath when it does get poured out is God maintaining the integrity of his holiness. And he must deal with it. And so we need to keep some of these ideas in mind as we move forward. Um, that prophetic picture I told you about, um, let me just read to you some of the description that's given to us in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah and who he is and what he would come to do. Um, and again, just by that first prom promise, in Genesis 3.15, it told us the seed of the woman would come and destroy the head or crush the head of the serpent. That picture is blurry. It's out of focus. It's a long ways off. We're not sure what we're looking at. 
But as we go through, here's some more descriptions. We're told that the Messiah would come from the seed of Abraham. He'd come from the tribe of Judah. He'd come from the house of David. He'd be anointed by the Holy Spirit. This one really narrows it down. He'd be born of a virgin. That doesn't happen very often. That he would be born in Bethlehem. So we're given the town in which he'd be born in. Long time before he was born, we're actually told where he'd be born. We're told that children would be massacred after his birth. We're given a prophecy of a messenger who would come to prepare his coming, referring to John the Baptist. We're told that he would speak in parables, that he would heal people. Um, we're even given a time frame. Don't have time to go into that. But certain prophecies, you read these a certain way, it's like it looks like it's giving even a time frame, a certain generation in which Jesus would come. That he would come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, that he'd be anointed by the Holy Spirit, that he'd be tortured, and we're given the details of his suffering and his death, descriptions of crucifixion hundreds of years before that was even invented. Talk about his hands and his feet being pierced. We're told that his joints, or his bones would be out of joint, but they would not be broken. That's something that happens to somebody when they're on the cross. We're told that he would uh, be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver that would be used to buy a potter's field. Pretty accurate, pretty detailed description, isn't it? We're told that he would not remain dead for long and that he would ascend back into heaven. Okay. That's just uh, about 18, 19 prophecies. There's dozens of prophecies all pointing towards Christ. And for those who had ears to hear, there was enough revelation given to where they recognized when Jesus came that he's a fulfillment of this. And so that prophetic picture started out blurry as we go through the Old Testament story, whether it's the covenants, the Passovers, the ceremonies. That picture keeps getting closer and closer and a little bit more in focus and eventually gets to the point where it's just a little bit out of focus. And for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, they're like, Jesus seems to fit this picture that's just a little bit out of focus. And some were looking for it, and some received him, and some did not. Because they didn't want to. Interestingly, the people who knew the scriptures the most, the content of the scriptures, were the Pharisees and the chief priests, the leaders, the spiritual leadership. They virtually had the Old Testament memorized. And yet when Jesus began to fulfill this prophetic picture, they refused to see it. They didn't want to receive him. They rejected him. Other people recognized it and rushed to him, understanding that he was the coming Messiah. Now, a few things I want to say about going to this period of time. Sometimes a question comes up, why did Jesus come when he did? Why not before? Why not after? Okay. Take a look at this passage. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 through 5 just gives us a hint on this. Here's what it says, talking about the New Testament revelation here. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son to redeem so that we might receive adoption as sons. A very pivotal verse. In other words, when everything was right, when everything was in place, that's when Jesus came. And why did he come? To redeem us so we could receive adoption as sons. And again, sons means generic, means sons and daughters. Right? What does it mean the time was right? What were the factors that were in place? Remember, God's heart, from the beginning has been for the nations. He said, Abraham, in you all peoples of the earth shall be blessed. Here's some things you know about the time that Jesus came. One of the things we know from history is, of course, it was during a time of the Roman Empire. And so we had the Roman Empire, which at this point in time, a huge territory that was under the leadership of one nation, one civilization. And in this huge empire, there were all these other people groups. Each people group had its own language. 
And so prior to the Roman Empire, you had all these different language groups which separated people and made it very difficult to communicate. Something else you had a problem with is the world is dangerous. To travel from one town to the next, you had the risk constantly of being attacked by bandits and robbers who would wait for unsuspecting victims to come through, beat them up, kill them, and take their stuff. Rome, to maintain control of their empire, did at least three things which really helped prepare the way for the spread of the gospel message. First thing they did is by the force of their military, they put out this big threat to anyone who disrupt the, the security of the empire, they'd come after them and hunt them down, and they wouldn't give up. So if they'd hear about bandits in the hills over here between these two towns, they'd send their soldiers there to go find those folks and kill them. Right? After a while, the message was clear, don't mess with Rome. And don't attack our travelers. But to make that travel easier, Rome <clears throat> created this huge system, this huge network, this huge infrastructure of roads and bridges. And so bridges which would cross rivers and streams and highways you could take with checkpoints and so on, which united huge parts of their territory by an amazing infrastructure. And with soldiers, you know, camped along the way in garrisons and so on. So you could travel on these roads or through the shipping lanes, and you could travel all the way across the empire with a huge amount of confidence that you would arrive safely in your destination because Rome kept the peace. Does that make sense? So you've got the Roman peace, you've got the system of roads, but something else they did to unite all these other people groups, they came up with a common language, Greek. And so everyone had their native tongue, but to be a functioning member you know, in public life and so on, you also had to know the Greek language. And so Greek became the common language of the whole empire. When the fullness of time was right, God sent forth his son. Jesus was born in an age when once his disciples caught this vision, the Great Commission, they began to spread throughout the known world. They could travel anywhere and arrive, and once they got there, they communicate with those people groups because everyone spoke Greek. Isn't that cool? Okay. Because God's heart is for the nations. Now, it didn't reach the whole world, but it was a good foundation where God's people were poised to continue to spread this message, the people group after people group. Now, something else we're told, the time that Jesus was born in was under the dynasty of this guy named King Herod. He was very wealthy. He was very powerful. He was a genius, um, very intellectually bright. He was an engineer. He made incredible things that you know, are almost marvels today. But he's also very selfish and very wicked. He controlled and ruled Israel. He was a subject of Rome, so he was ruler over Israel you know, at the, you know, in submission to Rome. And he was very much a tyrant in the way he ruled, but very powerful. Take a look at Luke chapter 3. I'll just put this on the board here. I think this is just fascinating the way sometimes God puts his contrast in the scriptures. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... Tiberius Caesar was the ruler of the whole Roman Empire. When Pontius Pilate was governor, so he's a guy who's the Roman governor of Judea, Herod was Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Eteria and Trachonius, Licinius, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priestess, or I'm sorry, the high priesthood of Anna, Annas and Caiaphas. He lists all these rulers Tiberius Caesar, Pilate, Herod, Philip, Licinius, Annas, Caiaphas. With all these incredible people who are very well known, this was the power structure at the time. The political power structure people and the religious power structure people. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. This hippie-looking guy who's out there eating locusts and wild honey. Oh, I think there's a powerful message there, you guys. 
our hope does not come from government leaders. It doesn't necessarily come from our religious leaders. It comes from the people that God chooses to use. And he chose to use this weird guy who was hanging out in the wilderness. And this man came and paved the way, prepared the way for the coming of the Messiah. That's awesome. And so this Messiah comes, um, following up on uh, <clears throat> just his destiny, you know, the virgin birth. It's a mystery for a while as to who he is. What is the nature of this man? You know, is he just a prophet? Is there more than that? Eventually it becomes very clear by his own admission that he's not just a guy. As we saw in the video, he's the embodiment of God's own holiness. This man is a man, but he's also God himself. Mind-blowing stuff. And just want to look at one quick story of his life as he's teaching his disciples. He takes him to this place called Caesarea Philippi. And uh, here's some pictures of what this place looks like today. Caesarea Philippi at that time was seen as a very evil place, a very pagan place, because Caesarea Philippi was a Roman city. The Roman people believed in false gods, a whole religion worldview that's very different than what the Jews believed in. And the Jews saw this place as sort of like the capital of wickedness within their nation. They hated this city because this was a place of demonic worship in their eyes. Now, in Caesarea Philippi, there's this, you can see these caves in the rocks. There's a spring, a natural spring, that used to come out from the mouth of those caves. There's an earthquake now. It comes at the base. But at the time of Jesus, it poured out of these holes in the mountain, these caves. And in their mind and understanding, the Romans, the Greek culture, thought that this river actually flowed from hell. It's flowing from the other side, the spiritual, supernatural other world. This place where these gods were worshipped, had a name for it. It was called the Gates of Hell. That was, its, that was its, what it was called, the Gates of Hell. We're told that Jesus took his disciples to this place where all these gods are, this evil place, just a symbol of the, the kingdom of Satan. And he asked them a question. Remember, he says, you know, who do the people say that I am? You know, like, oh, some say you're a prophet, some say you're, you know, Elijah, and this kind of thing. And he says, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. In this acknowledgement that you are the chosen one, the one we've been hearing about for all this time. And then Jesus says something amazing. When you understand the context when he said these words, it's powerful. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, is what that means. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, sometimes people interpret this rock to mean Peter. Okay? It's a different Greek word. They don't want to go into it. When he said these words, they're by this huge rock, which is called the gates of hell. Understand this? What's he saying? In this place of darkness, this is where I'm going to build my church. We're not the ones cowering, you know, cowering and scared in a castle somewhere off in the wilderness. God's kingdom is going to be built and bring redemption in these places of darkness. We were talking about this worldview yesterday, secular worldview. It was dark. Some of us felt the heaviness of that. It's in those places where God sometimes shines the brightest. Does that make sense? That was the whole beginning, in a sense, of the thing. I'm going to build my church on top of the kingdom of darkness, on its rubble, so to speak. And the gates of hell will not prevail against me. Remember, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God. Jesus makes statements. He talks about the fact that he is the great I am. 
equating himself with that revelation that Moses had in the wilderness. He equates, are you saying you're God? Basically, yes, he's saying he's God. Very fundamental thing that sometimes gets overlooked. He's God in the flesh. We come to the end of his life. Now, I'm coming into the last week of his, uh, of his earthly ministry before he was crucified and rose again from the dead. Interesting story. In Matthew chapter 21, he comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. You might remember this story. Um, and this is on Palm Sunday. Remember, they waved the palm branches. Sometimes we even have this in church. Palm Sunday waved the palm branches. As a kid, I used to, thought that, I used to think that meant peace, a peace. And it sort of does. But what it really means is deliver us. The palm branch was their political symbol of freedom. In their minds, freedom from the Romans. And so they're yelling, Hosanna, deliver us. They're very likely expecting Jesus to come in and be some sort of political ruler who would rescue them from the Roman Empire. And so he comes in Jerusalem, they're all like, yeah, he's coming. Our Messiah is finally here. Deliver us. Hosanna. And as they're waving the palm branches and laying their coats before Jesus, it's another way by virtue. They're also shaking their fists at the Romans saying, your time's coming to an end. A very politically charged atmosphere is going on in Jerusalem. And we don't know this for sure, but I think it's a safe speculation that many of the people were expecting Jesus to come into Jerusalem and to go to where the Roman garrison was, where the soldiers were, and to use the miraculous powers to bring it to an end. And instead, he takes a turn and goes another path, and he goes to the temple courts. Fascinating story. Like, what, what's he doing? Why is he going to the temple courts? Now, let's see here. Let me show this passage. We're told this, Jesus entered the temple complex and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Something significant about this particular day. Remember over here, Passover, I mentioned this quickly, I didn't write it down. On Passover, back at the time of Moses, on the 10th day of the first month, which is Nisan 10, the people were to take a lamb without spot or blemish and present it to the, the priests. Remember that? To prepare for the, the sacrifice of the lamb several days later. The day that Jesus came to Jerusalem riding on a donkey was Nisan 10. There are tens of thousands of people crowding into Jerusalem trying to get to the temple courts to present their lamb to be presented to the priests so that the priests can say, yes, worthy sacrifice, you and your family have done your obligation of spiritual worship before Yahweh. And so the temple on this day of all days would have been packed with people. So much activity going on. And you have this curious story. Jesus comes in there and it looks like he gets a little bit upset, doesn't it? Knocks over tables, drives people out. Okay. It doesn't explain to us in the Gospel of Matthew or any other Gospels exactly what's happening here. We have some insight from other historical writings. Other historians tell us what was happening. And here's what they describe. It's, it's kind of fascinating to think about this. They said, in the temple courts on this particular time, the people have to work their way through one interest or another to bring their lambs to get them approved. And here's what would happen. They would come into the temple court with their lamb. And one lamb, by the way, could represent ten families. Ten families could pool their money together to buy one lamb, and ten families represented by this one lamb. So you might be the representative of ten other ten families. You get there, you've saved your money, you get the gate, and the priest says, let me see that lamb. And you bring your lamb over, and he takes a look, and he says, 
what is this? How dare you dishonor God and us? This is not a worthy sacrifice. And they confiscate it. Take it, put it behind a curtain, and uh, do better next time. Try again. You're like, I traveled all this distance. I'm representing all these people. I'm here now. What do I do? And the priest kind of goes, got you covered, man. Today and today only. You can buy a pre-approved lamb that we've already acknowledged as a worthy sacrifice. And you can just buy it here. Well, where? Well, and he gives you instructions. Go over to the other side of the complex, and you can buy the pre-approved lambs from the temple. So you might work your way through the crowds, and you get to the table, and you're like, okay, here's the booth where I can buy a pre-approved lamb. And you're looking at these lambs they're selling, and they don't look any better than the one that you had confiscated. But you're like, okay, well, you're like, what's the price? They tell you the price, you're like, that's way more than what I paid back where I'm from. Well, that's, here you are. It's like buying a candy bar after you go past security in the airport. It's a lot of money, right? So you, here you are, you're stuck. Right? You pull out your money bag, and you pull out your coins, like, whoa, 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 you can't use that. That's Roman currency. Yeah, that's the money we use. It's got graven images on it. Graven images are in the front. That's breaking the Ten Commandments. Well, how am I supposed to buy the lamb? Well, you have to go over there to the money exchanging booth and exchange your money to get temple currency. So you go over here to this booth, and you exchange your money, you get temple currency, and you're getting a really bad exchange rate. Then you go back, and you buy this lamb, and you're being ripped off at every level. And it's conceivable that the lamb you end up buying is the same one that was confiscated because that's where they're getting the lambs from. They confiscate them at this store, take them in the back, and resell them. And this is all meant, the priests were meant to be there to facilitate people's, one of their holiest days of worship to God. And the priests are stealing from the people. Does that make sense why Jesus reacts to this a little bit now? Okay. Now you think, how could they justify doing something like this, the priests, since they're supposed to be, you know, the righteous ones? Well, it's conceivable. Here's how they justified it. Because in these courts, here's a map of it. The most holy place is that area where, in their minds, the glory of God dwells, the holy of holies. So they got the curtain and the other place. There was only one person who could go in the most holy place. That was a high priest one day a year. Remember the story. One guy going there one day a year. Other priests, maybe the elite ones, could go into the temple area, the holy place. The court of priests, people of that class, could go in that area worshiping the altar. The next court out, the court of Israel, this is where Jewish men could go. And they could get that close to the house of God, but they could not cross in the court of priests if they were not part of that, of that group. Women couldn't go in there, though. The next court out was a court of women where Jewish women could come here but they couldn't go any closer. The next level out was a Gentile court. Now, this is not God's setup in the Old Testament. This is what was happening at the time of Jesus. This is where Gentiles, non-Jews, who believed that the God of the Israelites was the one true God, here's where they could come and worship. Okay? We'll make space for them, but like sit in the back of the bus type of thing. Okay, You stay out here. You can't come any closer. All that corruption was happening here in the Gentile court. And very likely the Gentile believers in the God of Israel were being targeted. Why? We don't like them anyway. And what does Jesus say? It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. That's a reference to Isaiah and the full context of that. A house of prayer for all the nations. But you made this a den of robbers. He's like, this is meant to be a beacon of hope for the world and you're ripping them off as they come here to try to worship me. 
that was so insulting to the religious leaders, they decided we're going to have to get rid of this guy. And it didn't take long for this plan to come come into action. During that week, Jesus keeps teaching things. He's talking about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. We come to the end of his teaching week. A lot of confrontations with the Pharisees. We come to the Passover. He's now going to be celebrating this Passover with his disciples. And they come together to have the meal. And here's some things we know from tradition, how that Passover meal um, is played out. I think this is fascinating. We don't know exactly how many of these things they're doing, but it's a good bet many of these things may have been going on in the culture even at that time. During the Passover celebration, have you guys ever done this before? Passover Seder? Okay, some of you guys have been through this. You'll have a little bit more understanding perhaps of what we're talking about here. There are four cups of wine that are drank, at least at this time. Now there's five. At this time, they think there are four during the meal. Each one had significance. Before the meal, they have two cups of wine. Each one has a spiritual, has a symbolic significance to it. The first one is a cup of freedom, and then they drink the cup of deliverance judgment. These are both taking their minds back to how God delivered the people at the time of Moses when they came out from Egypt. God delivered us from Pharaoh, brought judgment on them, and he brought freedom for us. Then they have the meal. After the meal, there's two more cups. The third cup, interestingly, is called the cup of redemption. Now, when Jesus said, picked up a cup in that last supper ceremony and said, drink this, this is a new covenant in my blood, he's holding up the cup of redemption, which has been symbolizing him the whole time. It's like this whole symbolism, this cup represents me. And this cup is a symbol of this covenant I gave to Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Joel. Saying, it's happening right now. The fulfillment of all this, it's converging on me, my disciples. I don't know if they understood what was going on or not. Jesus offers this cup. Now, something else interesting about the meal, when they had the bread. Remember, it was unleavened bread because leaven represented sin and so on. They have three pieces of unleavened bread, one on top of another. Each one also had more symbolic meanings. The Jews are so much into you know, symbolism. The top one represents Abraham. The middle one represents Isaac. The bottom one represents Jacob. Isaac is that one, it was that son that back in the Old Testament, remember Abraham took him up to the mountain and it was about God said, sacrifice him. Remember the story? And Abraham's about to sacrifice his son Isaac and God says, no, don't do it. But this is meant to be a type, a picture of what's going to happen when God Almighty sends his own son. But when it really happens, the knife doesn't stop. God stopped Abraham. When Jesus is sent, no, the, the sacrifice actually happens. The Jews take off the top piece, pick up the middle one, which represents Isaac. They break it in half. And Jesus broke this and said, this is my body. This symbolizes me. I thought it symbolizes Isaac. Yeah, both, because Isaac is a picture of what Jesus was going to come and do. They eat one half of that loaf. They wrap the rest of it in linen and hide it to come back to later. Some people think, is this, a, is this a hint at the first and second coming? Don't know. Interesting. But he's fulfilling, spec, or he's fulfilling prof, prophetic understanding after prophetic understanding here as he's going through this. He says, take and eat. Okay, we're in fellowship together. We're told that after he spoke these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now, sometimes these little details, like, okay, why is it significant to mention he crossed the Kidron Valley? Well, for people at this time who understood the context, the day in which this is happening, this is coming into the Passover celebrations, crossing the Kidron Valley. Let me show you a map here real quick. They had their meal somewhere in Jerusalem. 
They crossed the Kidron Valley to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Archaeologists, a number of them think that there was an interesting thing going on in the temple courts. They said on the day of Passover, once it hit twilight on Passover, the, pro- the priests would have to sacrifice all these lambs, and they want to do it within a 24-hour period. And they may have had tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of lambs they have to slaughter. That's a lot of bloodshed, isn't it? So once it started, they just cut the throat, cut the throat, cut the throat. This would have created so much blood, they would have had a way, a system, to take that blood, from, to keep it from filling the whole court to drain like a sewer system. And they think that this gutter, this sewer system, took the blood of those lambs and drained it into the stream that went to the Kidron Valley. That's fascinating to think about. Because if that's the case, as Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley, he was crossing, passing through, stepping into the blood mixed with the stream, the blood that symbolized him to begin with. Did it twice. Did it to the garden and coming back across. Because the stream was flowing with water and with the blood of the lambs. They cross, they go over there, they are in the Garden of Gethsemane. And here's what we're told. Jesus went with them to the place called, called Gethsemane. He said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. What cup is he talking about, do you think? That cup of wrath. But not just a cup of wrath for the Canaanites or the Israelites or the Egyptians. The big one for everybody. That make sense? He knows he's going to have to take that wrath of God upon himself so that you and I would not have to experience it. And in his humanity, he is struggling in the depths of his being with this because he knows what this means. This means he's going to have separation from his father. This means he's going to have to pay a penalty that he shouldn't have to pay because he's holy. And so he sees that cup. He knows it's coming his way. He says, I'll do what you say, God. He goes on. For the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, you will be done. Second time. Is there any other way, my father? Is there any other way? We know the answer. If there was any other way to bring salvation to you and me, this would not have happened. Does that make sense? He would not have taken this cup if there was any other possibility, any other hope. Again, he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Father, if there's any way to let this cup pass from me, let's go with that option. But I submit to your will. Now Judas, who had betrayed him, knew the place, for Jesus often met there with the disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? Now again, please imagine what's going on here. Jesus wasn't cowering and hiding from his fate, was he? He came forward to address them. Not in fear, in confidence. Whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing there with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Interesting thing here, we want to be careful um, when I say this. Um, but when the Bible is translated from the original languages into other languages, they sometimes smooth things out to make it fit the grammar of the languages translated into. 
This is one of those instances. There is actually no Greek word for he. But it's awkward in English to just say I am. But here's what he said. The actual words, if you read this straightforward transliterating from the Greek, Jesus said to them, I am. And when Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Why is that significant? Because God the Son has just spoken in the authority of his mighty name. And in authority, all the soldiers go down. Now, if he wanted to escape, he wouldn't even have to run. He could just walk out of there because those guys are all immobilized. You ever think about that? They drew back and fell to the ground. He asked them again, whom do you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am. If you seek me, let these go. So he lets his disciples go. Then Peter, trying to take things into his own hands, having a sword, drew it back and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Peter, if I don't drink this cup, you have no hope. I have to do this. Don't interfere with your human wisdom. And so Jesus goes willingly to his execution. He lets them take him. So they cross the Kidron Valley once again, and they go into the temple courts, and they go, they, they have these, all these trials with the, the chief priest, the high priest. They go to King Herod, who's just kind of this, you know, really off-the-wall off guy. They keep passing around different people. And it's interesting, as they go to these places, they keep interrogating him. What is it you have done? What is it you have done? Whenever they ask Jesus about what he has done, what sins he's guilty of, he says nothing. Now, here's one way where sometimes media does us a disservice, because most times when I ever see these particular trials dictated or depicted through film or through plays at a church or something, they almost always show Jesus looking at the ground as if he's ashamed of something. Why would he be ashamed of anything? I think he's looking these guys in the eye, not with arrogance and defiance, with love and tenderness, and they can't figure out why he's not intimidated. But they ask him, what is it you've done? He just looks at them and doesn't say anything. And every once in a while in the interrogation, he'll speak up. You're like, okay, why does he stay silent under some questions and speaks up to other questions? And here's what's interesting. When they ask him what he's done, he says nothing. Because he's not guilty of any crime. He's sinless. When they ask him who he is, he steps right up and asks, answers a question. Because he knew what was going on here. He was not on trial for what he'd done. He had done nothing wrong. He was on trial for who he is. And we were putting Jesus on trial because he's the son of God. And we we're saying, we don't want you. We're going to find you guilty. No problem. Yes, I am the son of God. That is what I claim because that's what I am. Finally, they give up. They want to kill him so bad. But by law, the Pharisees cannot kill Jesus. They don't have the legal right to execute somebody. So they bring him before the Roman governor who doesn't really care about Jewish affairs as long as it, they can keep the peace. So they bring him the conscious Pilate. And this is talked about in John chapter 18. And they have this dialogue. And Pilate asks him questions like, you know, where do you come from? You know, is it true that you're king of the Jews? Yes. And they get into this interesting question. And I want you to pause and think about something. With all that you know about Jesus and all the ways that we focus on him, have you ever paused to consider why Jesus was born? Why did he come to the world? What was the reason for this? There's lots of reasons we can give. Some of the things the Bible says in answer to this, he came to seek and save that which is lost. He came to show us the Father. 
He came to redeem those who are under the curse. All those things are true. But when Jesus is on trial before Pontius Pilate, he answers these questions in a way that we oftentimes forget. I don't know. I miss this most of my whole life. There's only a few years this dawned on me what the significance of his answer. When he's just about to go to the cross, he's having a conversation with Pontius Pilate. And here's what he says. John 8, 1837. Here's what Jesus says. He needs to put it in one line, one phrase that summarizes his whole ministry. For this reason was I born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. We're back to the whole issue of truth versus lies, aren't we? Well, he could have said something else, but true, this message, you guys, this phrase, to test for the truth, summarizes everything else he did. He is the way, the truth, and the life. The reason why people are walking in darkness is because they have fallen under the enemy's lies. And Jesus came to shatter that in word and in action. And so he's testifying the truth. He's living the truth. He's demonstrating the truth. Now, if this is a foundation of why he came, what do you think should be the foundation of why we continue to live our lives? I think we should have a big emphasis on testifying to the truth. Does that make sense? Because he's now sending us out to make disciples of the nations. Pontius Pilate doesn't know what to do with this guy, and uh, he knows he's innocent. Three times, by the way, he declares him innocent. The highest authority in the land, three times, with his hat of authority, says, this man's innocent, I find no fault in him. So, let's crucify him. Think about that. The legal verdict is innocent. Penalty for being innocent is death. Fascinating. And so, he sends him to his soldiers. His soldiers... Uh, a bunch of guys who are just brutal in their, you know, in their whole occupation. It's all meant to impose things by force. We're told they came around him, the whole company, and they beat Jesus. We're told that to mock him, they wove this crown of thorns and placed it on his head. By the way, the first time the thorns come in the biblical story is back here when God pronounces a curse on the ground because of what sin has brought. And so thorns is a symbol of what sin has brought to the human race. Jesus is now being crowned with a symbol of your sin and my sin. And they're putting on him. They're mocking him. Hail, king of the Jews. They think they're being funny. He actually is a king of the Jews. We're told that they, yeah, they beat him. They pulled pieces of his beard out. We're told that um, Pilate had him scourged. It just says that. They had him scourged. For the people who first read these Gospels, they knew what that meant. They didn't need any more description. We do because we're so far removed from this. A scourging was something like this. Here's what typically the Romans had. The way they would do the victims, and in this case Jesus, typically the hands would be tied above the head. Almost on tiptoe, so he can't really do a whole lot. The Roman soldier would stand there facing Jesus with this thing in his hand, and he wouldn't just like whip in the front. He would take this thing and those three strands would come around the back side. And once it hit, they jerk it. That's how they do this. Sometimes it had hooks, bones, metal. Sometimes it was just little lead balls. But they do this over and over and over again. Eventually, the first number of lashes would just begin to bruise the skin. Eventually, the skin gets so damaged, it starts to go deeper and deeper, starts to tear into it. Some of the historians talking about this said sometimes these lashings would go so deep you could see bone exposed. And they started at the neck, worked their way all the way down to his, his ankles. Then they'd do the front side. And by the way, he's naked through this whole experience. Start here, 
and just destroy the front side of them. And oftentimes when these scourgings are over, you could see very little flesh left in the person because everything had been just cut to shreds. But the Romans knew, they were experts at this. They knew exactly how far they could take someone without killing them. How many of you guys have seen the movie The Passion of the Christ? Okay. So for those of you who have seen this movie, they tried, they still didn't go far enough to depict this. But it's the best, it's the closest we can get, okay, as far as visual understanding of this. One thing I saw in that movie, I really appreciated how they did their homework. You might remember when they're, when they're doing this to Jesus, when they're scourging him, there's this guy sitting at a table, watching intently, the Roman centurion, and he, like, he stops. Okay? And he says, flip him over, they go again, and he stops him. That guy's job is to look at Jesus and tell if he's close to death. If he's close to death, we stop. Just a few lashes short of killing him. You understand what I'm saying? The point is to take him as close to death without actually ending his life. To maximize suffering and prolong the death. So this is what they did to him. We were told that after that, they put a robe on him and mocked him. That robe would have had the effect of causing the blood to clot, almost like a bandage. Have you ever taken a bandage off too soon? What happens? Blood flow starts all over again. They tore it off. Everything's designed to maximize suffering and torment. They take him to the place of the cross after all this has been going on. Luke chapter 23. When they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Now, just to describe this crucifixion here briefly, I don't want to go too much detail because it can be, be overwhelming. Lord, how, how far should I go? What they would typically do, and this would have happened to Jesus, lay him on the ground on the cross, nail him, on the, nail him to the cross while he's on the ground. The nail, oftentimes the visual things show the nails going through the palm of the hand. Historians don't think that's what happened because what was in the palm of the hand, as gross as this is, the body weight would have caused the nail to tear between the fingers. The Romans considered the wrist part of the hand, and so it says the hand most likely, and they think this is the Romans, they put it through the wrist. Um, and they can go through the wrist, going between those bones, and once it happens, the wrist is locked, and there's no way he can come off the cross. Now, medical examiners have taken a look at what this would have done. If you have a nail that size going through the wrist, there's a nerve that runs through your wrist. Um, that nerve serves the most sensitive parts of your body, it's the fingertips and the hand. Medical examiners say, to imagine what it would be like for a nail to go through that nerve. They said, think about a different nerve, a similar nerve, not the same one, a similar nerve, your funny bone. And we call this a funny bone. Okay? It's only funny when someone else hits it, right? But you know what you're talking about. When that thing hits, what happens? You get the sh shock of pain. They said, to try to imagine the pain of the nail going through the wrist, imagine taking that funny bone nerve and crushing it with the pliers. But here's the thing. It wouldn't be a shock of pain. It would be continual and sustained pain. The convulsing would be so intense because the mind can't even comprehend how to deal with this. And so you might see the victim's arms convulsing because the body, the mind, does not know how to comprehend this level of pain. It was so bad they invented a word in Latin. In English, we have this word today. It derives from what happened here on the cross. We call it excruciating. Excruciating, excruciating meaning out of the cross. They invented a word to describe the kind of pain that someone has on the cross because there's nothing else like it. And that word's continued on in certain languages today. 
Similar thing, a similar nerve runs through the, through the feet. They would have put the feet on top of each other, one nail through both feet, and canted at an angle. The cross would have been hoisted up, and when it fell into the ground, typically the shoulders would become dislocated as he's hanging there. Now, once the victim is on the cross, once Jesus would be on the cross, crucifixion is a very slow death by suffocation. Um, it's hard to explain this, but when, if he would have been in this position, because his arm is dislocated, he can't pull himself up at all. So when he's in this down position, the pressure and the strain on his rib cage is so intense that he can't exhale his air. He can't work his lungs right. In order to breathe, he'd have to push up and straighten his legs. But in that position, all of his body weight is resting on that one nail. The legs become fatigued. To rest his legs, he's got to come down. But when he comes down, he can't breathe. And so all day long, hour after hour, he's going up and down, just trying to breathe. When people die on the cross, what typically happens is they simply can't push up anymore, and then they suffocate. But some people could be on those crosses for days, just trying to get enough air to eat, or enough, uh, enough air to, to take in. By the way, remember when uh, they came to the victims? What did they do to make sure they're dead? They broke their legs. Because if the legs are broken, they can't push up. That's why that was all about. They came to Jesus. They saw that he was already dead. So they just put a spear in his heart to make sure. Interestingly, that fulfilled the prophecy. His bones would not be broken. Virtually everyone else who died in the cross had their bones broken, but not Jesus. In fulfillment of a prophecy from a long time prior. So Jesus is in this situation. As they're doing to this to him, um, other historians tell us that this scene is so ugly. They say what would usually happen at a crucifixion scene is all the young punks from town would come because this was sport for them. This was entertainment. And they would mock, they would jeer, they would throw food, they'd throw animal dung at the people on the cross. And the people on the cross would be so humiliated that they would spit back. Anything you could do to get back. If someone came close, they'd spit at them. They'd try to urinate on them if they were close enough. But the whole time they're calling down curses, calling God to curse these people who are so humiliating them. And these guys are down here laughing the whole time. That is significant because that's the typical scene. In this particular instance, Jesus turns to all these people and says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. No one had ever seen anyone respond this way while they're hanging on the cross. No sense of anger, rage, bitterness, revenge. Compassion on the very people who are doing the mocking. Isn't that fascinating? Here's what we're told. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. The ninth hour, by the way, by their reckoning, in our way of doing the calendar, it's three o'clock in the afternoon, and by the way, this is the end of Passover. So at Nisan 14, at three o'clock in the afternoon, that's when the lambs are being sacrificed for the Passover ceremony. At that moment, darkness comes over all the land. At that moment, Jesus cries out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. That's his native tongue that they spoke at home. His mother tongue, the family language. And from what I understand, this is one of the only times that Jesus addresses God as God. Every other time, he calls him my father. He goes a prayer, my father, my father. All of a sudden, it's a little bit more distant. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As hard as the physical things were, 
we can maybe begin to understand that, relate to it, I think we can't really comprehend the physical suffering. As bad as all that was, that was not the hard part for, the, for Jesus in this. The hard part for Jesus is when God now took that cup of wrath and began to pour it upon him. And as he took our sins upon his shoulders, sin brings separation for the first time in eternity. And this is a mystery. If you ask me afterwards, I cannot explain it to you. Somehow God the Son experienced separation from God the Father. I don't get it, but that's what happened here. And for the first time in eternity, he is all alone. And he's experiencing separation brought on by sin. And he's done. But that wrath is poured out upon him. While this is going on, we're told that when those standing there heard this, they said he's calling Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine and vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. There's some speculation as to what this is. Some historical research gives a possible thing that's happening here. And I think this is fascinating. The sponge they think they put in his mouth, wine vinegar, here's something we know from our own culture. Romans were you know, very big on hierarchy. People who are high up are much more valuable than the people on the lower end. And so the elite of Roman culture, whether it's Roman officers or other people, they thought they were too good to wipe themselves after they went to the bathroom. So servants would do that for them. So you'd go to the public latrine as a Roman elite, and when you're done relieving yourself, the slaves would take a sponge dipped in vinegar, and they would wipe your butt. The reason why it was in vinegar was to sterilize it to be used for the next person. It's a good possibility that that's the kind of sponge you're shoving in his mouth just to add to the humiliation. And this time he drank it. He actually took from that sponge. Because what's happening in the physical is mirroring what's happening in the spiritual. I can't think of a better image of nasty wine than what that cup of sin must be like. Does that make sense? And so he offered it to Jesus to drink. And that cup of wrath is being poured upon him. And when he had finished the drink, because he partook from it, when he finished a drink in the physical realm, he also finished that drink with the cup of wrath being poured upon him. You remember what he said? It is finished. Not I am finished. It is finished. What is finished? This whole plan of redemption. This plan that's been set in motion from Genesis 3.15 to bring salvation to the people of the earth. To break the power of sin. To break the curse. To restore healing. Instead of sin contaminating for the holiness of God to go out and bring transformation instead of death and destruction. And to provide a way for people to come into that holy fellowship with God once again. That's incredible. And Jesus, knowing that it was finished, it was accomplished. He didn't say, I'm finished again. We're told that with that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. He yielded up willingly what no one could take from him. He gave it. Matthew tells us what happened right after this. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Maybe you've had teachings on the temple, the tabernacle. The curtain it's talking about was what separated the holy place from the most holy place. The most holy place is where the manifest presence of God dwelt. One guy could go in there one day a year. The curtain that separated that from the rest of the temple was a symbol of sin and separation because sin brings separation. And as God the Father pours out his wrath on Jesus, I just get this picture of him above the, above the crucifixion scene, pouring out his wrath in a rage. 
at all that sin because he hates it so much. And in that same rage, he steps over the temple and he tears that curtain violently because he hates what that curtain is symbolized. That curtain symbolized separation that keeps you from coming in to the direct presence of God. And he says, no more are you to be separated from me. I took care of the problem that you people created. No more separation. When the centurion, I mean, it was an earthquake, right? So it was so violent. There was an earthquake when this happened. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. The first one to acknowledge this was a Gentile, the guy who did all this. He knew something crazy and unique was happening here. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that he became sin for us. And as he was torn, the veil was torn in the temple. Now, from the time of Moses until the time of Jesus, that holy of holies in the temple, in the most holy place, one person could go in there one day a year to be an intercessor on behalf of the people. And everyone, the rest of us, had to trust the priests to go before the presence of God. What does the New Testament tell us is the Holy of Holies today? What does it say? What does Scripture say? 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You guys, we, I think, are so out of touch with the privilege that we have that we are the Holy of Holies. For all this Old Testament history, one guy one day a year, now we have access anytime we want because his spirit now dwells within us, not in a building in Jerusalem somewhere. Isn't that amazing? And so we come to a place like this. We're not coming to a temple. We take our temples with us everywhere we go. When we go to the nations, we are bringing the presence of God to those nations. And when we are struggling and we face adversity, we don't have to wait to go to the priest one day a year to intercede for us. We can just go directly into the throne room. We can go directly in the Holy of Holies and say, God, I need you. Guide me, instruct me, or let's just hang out without fear of being struck dead by coming to the holiness of God because that's been taken care of. Isn't that incredible? Now, we hear these things, but how often do we actually live if this is true? I think if we really understood this, in its full reality, we would live life so differently, wouldn't we? We would have greater confidence. When it comes to struggles with sin, I think a response would be, I'm not going to sin because I know God's going to forgive me. I want to stay away from sin because I know how much it costs him to drink my cup. I'm not going to spit on that cup by choosing to sin, knowing that I'll be forgiven tomorrow. That's not the end of the story, though, is it? We know that three days later, he demonstrated his power over these things by rising again from the dead. And he tells us in the scriptures, he says, because I live, you also will live. Because I hope we have a different view of the cross. When we come to the cross, and we're going to have a time of response here in a moment, when we come to the cross, understand, we need to feel the heaviness of sin, yes. But once we feel it, we need to leave it on that cross. Because if Jesus put it there and left it there, you and I do not have the right to convict ourselves about that same stuff and to keep reminding ourselves of what we've done. Does that make sense? We need to walk in his forgiveness and truly believe in it and not be condemned and not be dragged down by this sense of shame. 
So we walk not in arrogance, but we walk in confidence, don't we? And that new life that came because of his resurrection, we in a sense have that same reality now. One day it'll be fully completed, but we have that same reality. And after he rose again from the dead, he gave his disciples this calling. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. By the way, that wasn't possible until the veil was broken. The veil is broken, and the Holy Spirit has come upon us, and we are to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Nepal, everywhere else we would go to the end of the earth. And where is all this going? We get a glimpse of it in the book of Revelation. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. We know the end of the story. One day, all nations will have received the gospel. But this is what we're called to in our generation, to bring this out there. I'm going to just pray here and ask uh, Marco to come prepare. He's going to just lead us in worship here. Um, this requires a response. This is always different. I'd like us to respond in a way that you feel prompted to do. But sometimes a response out loud echoes what God's doing in other people's hearts. Does that make sense? This is a corporate thing. It's also an individual thing. And it might just be a simple thank you. It might be something deeper than that. But, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your truth. Lord, we thank you for you. Lord, as we've been looking at all these different ideas and worldviews and um, everything else that's going on, we just acknowledge that you are our king. You are the one who saves us, Lord. And you are the only hope. And so, as we respond now to what you've been speaking to us, Lord, Holy Spirit, fill this room. Take the truth of your word. And make it a reality. Not just stuff we think or believe in our mind. I pray it goes deep into our heart to a level of conviction. Lord, we want to understand in a fuller and deeper way who you are, what you did in the cross, Lord. And the incredible privilege that we have to walk with you. So we just pause and respond now in Jesus' name.